Why do you have two last names? Now, this is one of those moments where kids will ask very awkward and difficult questions of one another as the adults standing around just sort of lean in and realize this is an awkward moment. This is an awkward situation. How in the world is this child going to respond to this question? He's been put on the spot. Maybe this is the first time he's ever been asked this question. He has two last names. And the child responded as if it were made perfect sense to him. He said, well, my mom thinks it's important for me to have a man's last name and a woman's last name. I don't know if that was true of his mother. I don't know if that was the reason why this child was given both his mother's last name and his father's last name, but that's what he said in the moment. And then there was a snarky adult standing by who responded, but whose last name does she have? Now, none of the kids answered or responded. They just kind of went back to playing. They didn't realize the irony of such a question, and some of you may not in this moment understand the irony of such a question. Maybe you'll get it in just a minute. The fact that this child had his mom's last name, his dad's last name, but his mom's last name was actually his grandfather's last name. So in fact, he had the last name of two men. Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds of discussing that today, but it's just to prove that you can't get away from fatherhood. You can't get away from the reality that God has wired up the world for this issue of fatherhood to define us. We talked about a few weeks ago, we come into the world through a mom. Eve is called the mother of all living. Mothers give us life, but fathers identify us. They say, you are my child. This is who you are. This is what you receive from me. Here is your inheritance. This is your future in the world. And as Jesus is talking about what it means to follow him, what it means to have his father as our father, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 6, he begins to discuss our new identity and this new fatherhood that we have in the world. That God is, in fact, our father. And that changes our identity. It changes who we are in the world. It labels us. I know growing up in Lewisburg, Tennessee, and you would tell someone you just met, maybe an older gentleman, what your name was, Jeremy Haskins. And they would begin to ask, so what Haskins are you? And in in that time in that town, there were all kinds of Haskins. There were Haskins that were pig farmers. There were Haskins that were tobacco farmers. Now, I was a part of the Haskins that kind of was bougie and moved to the city of Lewisburg, away from the farms, but I would be asked this question, who's your dad? Whose boy are you? And my response gave them a context for who I was, where I was from, my identity. And here, Jesus is unpacking this for his disciples. You have a new status. You have a new identity in the world because you have a new father. 
And, and throughout the Lord's Prayer, this issue of identity is woven in and out. And it is to mark your prayers. It is to mark who you are, that you have been identified by God as your Father. This prayer that we've been looking at, it is the climax of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is establishing this identity for his disciples. And at the peak of that identity, he says, you are to be involved in prayer. Prayer is the experience of your adoption. You have a new father and you are to talk to him. He's given you a name. He's given you an inheritance and he's given you a future. And these things are to mark your prayers. Last week we talked about how God's name is to mark our prayers. God has tied his name to his dealings with you in the world. He has promised to be faithful to you. He has promised to be good to you in Christ. And he has tied his name to that. And so when you pray, you say, hallowed be your name. God, glorify your name. And what that means for you is good. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to forsake his promises to you because he's good and he wants to be known as a good father. We are to pray for the kingdom to come, the presence of Christ in the world by the power of the spirit through the preaching of God's word. We are to pray that that would come in our church and to the ends of the earth. God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven. And we are to pray that he would rule and reign on earth. But all of this is based on our new identity in Christ with God as our Father. And the question in the Christian life when it comes down to who we are is this. Is the Father good? Is he good? That is the question that we're going to ask. And Jesus in this section is trying to establish, yes, he's good. And he has given you his kingdom by the presence of the spirit in your life through his word. You're a part of this kingdom now when you follow after me. And him giving you that kingdom proves he's good. But as you move in the world... That question's going to come up over and over and over again. Is the Father good? And Jesus calls us to pray in light of his goodness. And notice as we move through the second half of the Lord's prayer, what we are to pray for in light of God's goodness. Notice verse 11. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then he says, ask for bread. Ask for provision, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now this request here sums up our need for provision day in and day out. And notice how it is phrased, our daily bread. Many listening to Jesus would have been day laborers. And they would have been thinking day to day. I need enough today just to get by today. And Jesus says, ask your father to provide for you. He will provide for you day in and day out. Bread, essential, what, it, what you need to survive. Food, it sums up what we need for provision to survive. Notice he doesn't say, it, it's not indicating what we want. It's what we need. Within your prayer request, you are to fill your need 
for God. I need him to provide for me today if I am going to live, if I am going to survive. And in context, Jesus has taught his disciples, your father knows what you need. He knows what you need before you ask. So ask him. He knows you. Ask him. He takes care of the birds of the air. He takes care of the flowers of the field. He's surely going to take care of you. Ask him for what you need from day to day to day. Ask for provision. One missionary once said, you are immortal until God is done with you. He will surely give you what you need day in and day out. But notice in context of this prayer, this physical request This request for the physical, material need, it's surrounded by all of these spiritual promises. We're to hallow the name of God. We're to ask for the kingdom to come. We're to ask for forgiveness of our sins. We're to ask for deliverance. And then smack dab in the middle is bread, is the material provision we're to ask God for, what we need. And what we see in light of that is that The promises and the spiritual that we are to ask for is to overwhelm the the, the request for the physical need. It's inserted in the middle. And so the spiritual needs and the spiritual request, the request for the name of God, the kingdom of God, forgiveness of sin, deliverance from sin, it is to overwhelm the physical needs. Not that the physical needs aren't important, but it's to make, we're to see the priority of praying in light of the spiritual promises God has given. But we could also say this, the promises that surround this need also give reason for the physical need. Why do you need bread today? Why do you need health? Why do you need resources just to get through this day? So you might hallow the name of God, so that you might witness the kingdom of God. The the physical need is to give us, this request is to remind us why we need those things. God, give me daily bread today. Provide for me enough today that I might hallow and glorify your name and witness your kingdom. But also it puts in context this that the spiritual that surrounds the physical puts in context the physical need. If the Father has given you His name, if He has given you the kingdom that is coming to earth, surely He's going to give you bread. Do you, do you see? Bread is in the middle of all of the spiritual promises because you look at all of those spiritual promises. He's going to hallow his name. He's given me the kingdom. He's going to forgive me of my sin. He's going to deliver me from evil. Well, in light of all of that, surely he's going to feed me day in and day out. If the Father has taken care of our greatest needs in his name and his kingdom, he's going to take care of our immediate needs. We think of Israel when they were delivered from Egypt, from bondage and slavery, and they were promised the promised land. And God leads them out into the wilderness to the promised land. And what does he do while they are in the wilderness? He promises to take care of them. And so what does he give them? Manna from heaven, bread from heaven. And we see a picture there. If I have promised you this land... I'm going to give you sustenance until you get to the land. 
And so here, we are to ask for daily bread, understanding God has given us a promise of a kingdom. If he's given us a promise of that kingdom, he will take care of us until we get to that kingdom. God has promised you heaven. He's going to feed you until you get there. But the reality in the gospel is God has given you way more than just physical bread. He's promised those things. When you believe in Christ, you are forgiven of your sins. When you believe in Christ, you're covered in his righteousness. When you believe in Christ, you're given the kingdom. And it is the kingdom that is to sustain you until you get to the new Jerusalem. In the same way God fed Israel in the wilderness, he feeds you with not just bread on your table, but bread from heaven who is Christ. And so when you think, give me this day my daily bread, you are to be reminded, I have also been given the bread from heaven who is Jesus Christ, and he will sustain me. As you, as you eat and as God provides for your health, as he provides for your resources day in and day out, and you begin to doubt those things, you are to be reminded, no, you have even more than what God has promised to give you. He has given you bread from heaven. And so in light of those things, Jesus says, ask for bread. Ask for provision. Knowing the Father is good, knowing he has given you more than you would ever need for eternity, you can stand before him and say, God, give me today what I need to glorify your name. If you wake up in the morning and you say, my mission is to make much of God's name, you begin to pray, give me what I need to do it. That is the prayer request. Provide for me that I may hallow your name and witness your kingdom. Father, today I am worried about my financial situation. Father, today I am worried about my health. God, but if you would just give me enough today to make much and glorify your name and witness your kingdom, that's all I need today. And that's what we are to ask for. But notice the second request. We are to ask for provision. We are to ask for forgiveness. Notice verse 12. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This word forgive, it means to release from bondage. It means to release from weight. We understand it as being released from the guilt and penalty of our sin. We have been created by God for his glory, and yet we have all chosen to live our own way for our own glory, and that is an infinite sin against an infinite holy God, and it acquires for us an infinite debt. And so we have to come before God and say, would you forgive me of my debt, my infinite debt before you? Would you release me of the penalty for my sin, what I owe you in light of my sin? but what I could never pay for because of my sin. Would you forgive me of my debt? But notice he continues, as we also forgive our debtors. Notice forgiveness is tied up in our just encountering God and our understanding of his, forgive, of his forgiveness to us. It's a part of our prayer life. Why? We can't bow our heads before a holy God and not understand that he is holy, 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 and I have sinned against him, and I don't deserve to bow my head before him. I don't hallow his name. 
I don't submit to his kingdom in the world. I don't do his will. And so forgiveness should be automatic. Confessing sin in your prayer life, it should be automatic. If you really understand your debt before God, you will be naturally driven to say, forgive me of my debt. Forgive me of my sin. Now, the reality is when we believe in Christ by faith, we are credited with his cross. We've been crucified. We've already paid for our sins in Christ. When we believe in Christ, his life is credited to us. We are righteous before God. We are accepted before God. And we stand before God 100% forgiven of all of our sins. All of our debts in Christ have been forgiven. And so you may ask then, why are we to ask for forgiveness as we pray? Are we still in debt in some way? Well, until we get to heaven, we live in a world that is still polluted with sin and death. We live in a world that's cursed with death. The, the, the life and goodness that comes through a world that is brought in total surrender to God's word in some sense is hindered and it is removed. And so while we have the spirit of God living within us, the world around us is still polluted with the curse. And there's certain patterns that are going to test us and tempt us. Even in our hearts where the promise of the gospel has been planted and we are being made new. The gospel takes center stage in our heart, but all around the gospel are still those patterns of sinful desire that are there. Those those dead roots and weeds from, from how we used to live that are growing there that have to be plucked out. And we give in to those desires. We give in to those patterns. We give in to those sins. And so as we live in this world until we get to heaven, we will be tempted and we will sin. And you've got to understand this. Sin still is an offense to God. As you experience choosing sin over God, it absolutely offends his character. It grieves his heart to see you choose things that are against his character and that are not good for you. And we experience those things. And while our sin, I need you to hear this, doesn't dissolve our relationship with the Father, it does hinder our fellowship with the Father. Sin doesn't dissolve your relationship with the Father. It's not as though when you give in to sin, God doesn't love you anymore and he's rejected you. No, he's committed to you based on your faith in Christ. But your fellowship with him is hindered because you are acting contrary to his will. And Jesus says in your prayer life, you can't act like that's not a reality. You can't go on choosing things that are against God's character and his will and act like they do not exist in your life. And so you must confess those things. What's going on here is the same thing that happens in any relationship that we're involved with. You have family that you're committed to no matter what. You have friends that you're committed to no matter what. But there's still going to be things that you and they do that hinder the fellowship. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be tension. 
And while you may say to one another, I'm not going anywhere, but there's some things we got to work out. When you bow your head to pray, that's exactly what God is saying to you. I'm not going anywhere, but let's work these things out. Why? Because that's what's good for you. I want what's good for you. And you are choosing what is not good for you, what is offensive, what grieves my heart. And so let's put that out on the table. Let's confess those things. Let's deal with them. J.I. Packer explains this section by, by saying, to understand why we still must ask for forgiveness of our debts before God, even though we are totally forgiven, we have to understand that God is both judge and father. That's who he is. As judge in Christ, he has said, you are forgiven and you are not guilty. The verdict is in. You, you are forgiven of all your sin. God as judge has said that to you. And he has accepted you. But as a father who loves you, when it comes down to your relationship, there's some things that, that he wants to deal with in your life. And he loves you, and that's what draws you in to confess those things. Is he's not just a judge. If, if he's just a judge, then I have no business bowing my head. But if he is father, he's wooing me into his love and care. And that also means that he is bringing to the surface those things that are contrary to his will and those things that are grieving him. So understand, he is a judge who has forgiven you, but he is a father who wants what's best for you. And that's why when you are convicted by the spirit of thoughts and actions and emotions that are contrary to his will, what you should naturally do in prayer is confess those things, understanding that he does love you. What Jesus calls you to do here is what we see in Psalm 51, where David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. You are saved in Christ. But there are sins that jeopardize the joy of your fellowship with the Father. And Jesus says, deal with those things. Deal with those things. Forgive us of our debts. Whatever debts out there that I know of, that, that, that I don't know of, bring those to the surface through your word that I might confess those sins. But notice, Jesus can't talk about forgiveness ever, really, without saying something like this as we also have forgiven our debtors. He, he adds that on there. That the Bible will not let us get away with accepting God's forgiveness for us and not forgiving others. The moment you begin to think all of the ways that you've sinned against God and all of the ways His infinite judgment should rain down upon you, but He has forgiven you in Christ, the moment that thought comes into your mind and your heart and your soul, you should naturally say, but what about my brothers and sisters and the sin I am holding against them? He will not allow you to claim his forgiveness and not forgive others. Why? It's proof you don't understand forgiveness. God has forgiven you of infinite sin, infinite death, and he has paid it all. And you have no business holding little petty sins against your brother and sisters. God is holy. God is righteous. You are a sinner. Who are you to claim the seat of judge? Jesus won't let us get away from that. 
If you're going to hold to my forgiveness, you must forgive others. And notice here, it's not even a request. Notice that. It's not help me forgive others. It's as I am forgiving others. As we have forgiven others. It's just assumed if you would ask God for forgiveness that you are forgiving others. It's not even a request. How in the world could you claim God's infinite forgiveness and not forgive others? Notice verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others' trespasses in heaven, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So are we accepted through forgiveness? If I just forgive? No, the point there is, You won't know how to forgive, and you cannot forgive unless you understand God's forgiveness to you. And when you do, you will naturally forgive others. And so what are you to pray? God, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give me bread today to witness your holy name, witness your kingdom, and forgive me for when I haven't hallowed your name or witnessed your kingdom or surrendered to you. And I'm going to forgive others. It's not even a request. I'm going to do that in light of the understanding I have of the gospel. And that's how we're to pray. We're to pray for God's name to be glorified. We're to pray for his kingdom to come. We're to pray for his will to be done. We are to ask for provision. And we are to ask for forgiveness. But notice verse 13. He says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The last thing we pray for is deliverance. These are categories that are to guide all of our prayers. God's glory, God's kingdom, heaven, and the will of God coming to earth. Provision, forgiveness, and then deliverance from our sin. And notice the way it's phrased here. And lead us not into temptation. I think it would be better to translate this, lead us away from or out of or through temptation without falling to temptation. I know that's a paraphrase, but I think that's the best way to understand what he's talking about here. 21 times in the New Testament, the word temptation is used, and it's always used for testing. It's always used for trial. And it's certain, as Christians, we're going to go through testing, It's certain as Christians, we're going to go through trials, but what we are to pray for is that God would deliver us through those things. He would walk us through those things, deliver us from the difficulty that we saw in James, that we would consider it all joy. Why? Through the testing, he is making us like Christ. Then he says, deliver us, which means to snatch us away from evil. Now, that should be translated from the evil one. He's referring to Satan here. So walk me through testing, keep me from sinning in temptation, and then snatch me away from the works of the evil one, from the works of Satan. Lead us through the testing, away from the sin, and away from the evil one. Now, why is it best to understand it that way? Because I think what Jesus has in mind is exactly what he went through just a few chapters earlier, when he is tested by Satan. He fasts for 40 days and he is hungry. And then he is what led out into the wilderness. And he is tested. And God 
led him through that testing, led him away from the evil one. He did not fall to that testing. But we have to understand what is the nature of the testing here. It's not as though God is holding out something that's really horrible for you, luring you away to do it, some sort of sin. No, he he is leading you through and allowing you to go through situations that are going to prove to you who he is and who you are. Remember in the wilderness, how is Jesus tempted? Over and over, Satan says to him, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God and you're hungry, why don't you just turn these rocks into bread and eat them? If you are the son of God, then you should be ruling and reigning. And if you bow before me, Satan says to Jesus, then I'll go ahead and give you the kingdoms of the earth if that's who you really are. And, and you say that your father in heaven is going to take care of you. Let's see if he'll take care of you. Let, let's jump off the top of the temple and see if he rescues you. Is he really going to take care of you? That's the essence of temptation in this world. Are you really who the gospel says you are? Are you really who the Father in heaven says you are? And the question and the testing is this. You, do you believe the Father's going to take care of you? That's, that, all sin can be wrapped up there. Do I believe the Father really loves me and is going to take care of me? He's given me the kingdom. He's given me forgiveness of sin, a resurrection, the righteousness of Christ, a promise to live forever. He's given me enough in the kingdom to prove he really cares for me. But do you believe it? Do you believe he's going to take care of you? And has he given you enough to prove it? That was exactly Adam's temptation in the garden, right? The serpent comes in to Adam and says, has God really said? Has God... Has God really given you enough? I mean, he's given you this garden, this kingdom to rule and reign over. And he's given you every tree to eat from in the garden. But has he really given you enough? Because there's this one tree. This one tree. Has he given you everything that you need? Because there's still this one tree. And it was a test If God really cared for him and God had really given enough, and that is the test you are facing every second of your life as a Christian. Are you really who God says you are? Cared for, a citizen of the kingdom, a son and daughter, a child of God. Every Think about it. All the things in your life right now that are causing turmoil in your heart, no, nobody in here right now, here in Richmond, Kentucky, is, is, is being lured. Oh, I, I think I'll leave here and drive down to Bourbon Street and live it up tonight. We're not having fourth on the farm. I've got a lot of free time. And, and we think about temptation that way. Immediately, we think about sin and we think about temptation. We think about the worst possible thing. That's why we get ourselves off the hook. That's what other people are doing. And we would read this, God, keep me away from the R-rated movies, the drug, alcohol, all of those things. And some of us in here may be struggling with those things. But some of us are getting ourselves off the hook because that ain't me. But what's at the heart of the temptation that you know is facing you right now 
Satan's looking you in the eye and, and tempting you. What is he saying to you? Does God really care about you? You know, if he cared about you, you'd make a little bit more. You know, if he cared about you, you wouldn't have to worry about money. You know, if God really cared about you, just like Jesus, you turn the rock into bread, he's saying to you, you cheat on the time clock this week. You take care of yourself because the Father doesn't take care of you. You cheat on the taxes. You look into the cash drawer at work. See what you can get away with with nobody knowing. Does your father really care for you? He's not providing for you in this moment. He must not care. He hasn't given you enough for this moment. You take care of yourself. Some of us are faced with the frailty of life and our bodies are breaking down and some of us are getting sick. And the question, the temptation in your life isn't, am I going to go out and party this weekend? It's questioning God. If you really cared for me, I wouldn't be sick. If you really cared for me, I wouldn't be going through this. And that's a temptation nobody else may even know that's going on in your heart. Your soul's withering around that question. Some of us come in here today and life's just not what we wanted it to be and we are discontent and we're saying, I don't know that you really care, God. I don't know that you've given me enough and you're chasing immediate gratification. Those things that give you the adrenaline rush that you want in the moment and make life just a little bit easier and a little bit better because if God really cared for you, you wouldn't be in that situation. And if he'd given you enough, you wouldn't be going through those emotions. And you're chasing immediate gratification, the pills, the alcohol. Some of us are so insecure, we are chasing any and every relationship that's in front of us. And that's sin. And we're doing things that break the heart of God. And the reason you're doing those things is because you don't believe God cares for you and He hasn't given you enough. That's the testing. This is how it works out in our life. That's why you're pressing the limits on that conversation at work. And you're saying, I, I will never be involved in an affair. But you're getting an adrenaline rush on the conversation. Because you're saying, God doesn't care for me and he hasn't given me enough. This is how temptation works out in our life daily, moment by moment. Some of us are disheartened that we don't have more power and we don't have more influence in the world. And so in the, in the moments where we do have some sort of influence, we just assert ourselves. And, and, and I'm going I'm to step into this situation and my will will be done here. Why? God hasn't given me enough in calling me a ruler in waiting. I can't wait for that. This is where temptation comes in our life. And the good news is, Jesus says, it must be a part of all of your prayers. Deliver me. So you are confessing your sin. Father, forgive me. And the one who confesses their sin automatically says, yeah, and don't let me give in to that again. Don't let me believe the lies of Satan. The father of lies cannot care for me the way that my heavenly father cares for me. But that's where the questions of temptation are rooted. And this is why Jesus says, pray that the father would deliver you. 
Father, deliver me from doubting your goodness and believing Satan's promises. Father, convince my heart of your love for me in the gospel that I would never drift into discontentment. Father, confirm in my heart your kingdom. It is enough by the power of your spirit. Confirm this in my heart. Rescue me from the lies of Satan. Rescue me from the destruction that he causes. Now some translations in this section by saying, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And it's just another way of reiterating everything he said. This is about you, God. You're the one that must do this. Hallow your name. Bring your kingdom. Bring your glory. Answer my prayers in this way. One of the things I want to do today before we partake of the Lord's table is just where we are. Pray through these headings in our own life. I will say, going through the Lord's prayer has helped me in my prayer life. When, when I bow my head to pray, I, I'm beginning to just naturally say, God, glorify your name. And then I think through all the ways that I need him to glorify his name in my life, knowing it's for my good. God, would your kingdom come? Would you empower our church to declare the gospel to the ends of the earth? Would your will be done? Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven. Would he rule and reign in my heart? God, forgive me. Forgive me for the ways in which I have not hallowed and glorified your name. And God, would you deliver me from the temptation that is creeping into my heart in these moments, causing me to doubt who you are and who you have said I am in your kingdom. And so we're going to pray through these, and then we will partake of the table together. But you pray for them in light of your life and your situation.